0: Well, hey, good morning, East. Uh, It makes my heart so happy to see all of you guys getting to know each other, meeting new people. That's what we're all about here at Christ Church, is building a community of Christ that does life together. And so, so glad that you are here with us in the East Auditorium. For those of you that are joining us in West and online, Glad that you're with us as well. It's just good for us to be in worship together. My name is Pastor Mike, and I'm on the pastoral team here. And for the past three weeks, we've been doing what I call a theme study, in which we've taken a specific concept that is used often in Scripture, and we've been tracing the ways in which it's been utilized as a metaphor all the way from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And that specific theme that we have been tracing the past three weeks is this concept of fruit. How is the word fruit used as a metaphor to convey different concepts about our faith? And so the first week, we talked about the ways in which it's used in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Last week, we talked about the ways in which Jesus uses the metaphor of fruit. And this week, we're talking about the ways that the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, uses the metaphor of fruit. And so if you missed either of the first two messages, uh, just go online. Um, All of our messages are up on YouTube or on our website, and you can catch up that way. So just a reminder before we get into things, um, because the New Testament is written in Greek, that uh, last week I taught you the word for fruit in Greek, which is carpon. Say carpon. Carpon or carpos are two different ways in which the word fruit appears. And this week we are looking at the ways that the Apostle Paul uses that to convey certain messages about what the Spirit is doing. Now, before I get too far into today's message, I need to add a small disclaimer, uh, which is that um, even though I'm not going to say anything today that would get me censored by the FCC, um, we do have to talk about some mature themes. And so if at any point you need to go grab a coffee or go to the bathroom, I'm not going to be offended um, because we do have to talk about some things um, that may not be super kid friendly. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's jump right into the different ways in which uh, Paul uses fruit as a metaphor in his writing and in his teaching. So one of the examples that he uses comes from the book of Ephesians, where he says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So what Paul is saying in this instance is that when you walk in the light, as opposed to darkness, there is fruit, something that is produced from walking in the light, and that fruit is goodness, righteousness, and truth. All wonderful and good things, right? Well, the Apostle Paul also uses it um, in a couple of different ways, and his favorite thing is to say the fruit of darkness. A concept. The fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, if you grew up in the Christian faith and you were like, oh, they're doing a series on fruit, many of you guys were probably expecting um, what is coming today, and today we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, So many of you guys might have sang about it growing up in Sunday school. Um, You might have seen it plastered on people's walls in, you know, the favorite decor from Hobby Lobby. Um, But this is one of the most famous verses from Scripture in which Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says, By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And maybe you can already start to see why this is one of our favorite verses in the Christian faith, because just look at this list. Like, this is the summation of a ton of positive human virtues, right? Who can argue with love or joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, These are virtues that we hold in our Christian faith, but just about anybody can see that these are good things to have. Now, one of the things that we tend to do sometimes, however, is that we take this verse and we like to cut it out of its context and we like to slap it up on our walls or we like to sing it in our children's songs. But when we do that, sometimes we... We make a mistake. We may be in danger of missing out on the greater context in which Paul is writing this verse because this list is not an exhaustive list of things that the Spirit does, but it is a good list that contrasts with something else going on. So if you notice from uh, when we read the verse, the very first two words are, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is, etc., Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, what is he contrasting it with? What's what's being compared and how is this different than something else that he's trying to talk about? Well, specifically, Paul is talking into a context of the Greco-Roman world, so the Galatians live in Galatia, which was a part of the Roman Empire, but it also had a bunch of Greek-speaking influences. And so we call the culture that they lived in, um, he refers to them sometimes as the Gentiles, which only means that they were raised not Jewish. Um, so he's talking into this Greco-Roman world. And any of you that have done any sort of world history know that there's a ton of amazing good things that have come out of Greek and Roman society, that they have amazing philosophy and um, political theory and science that has undergirded all of Western civilization since its inception. But Paul, he looks at Greco-Roman culture and he sees some things about their culture that It's pretty messed up. And a couple examples that Paul would have been familiar with is that they used to host these big parties called bacchanals, which were um, feasts or parties dedicated to the god Bacchus, the god of wine. And so you would go to these parties, and when you came home and you went to bed, if you came home sober or if you came home with the same person that you went to the party with, then you were doing it wrong. And he also sees this culture specifically within Greek culture that uh, the way that people were educated, that sometimes you would get young men who would be tutored by older men, and that's one of the dominant ways that the elites would educate their kids. But particularly in Greece and in Athens in particular, sometimes that relationship would take on a sexual nature. Ugh, gross. Um, and Paul even um, has to talk to the community in Corinth that there is a man who's a part of their community that is shacking up with his stepmom. And Paul's got to be like, no, 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 no! not even the pagans do that, man, that um, you have to separate yourself out from that. And so what Paul sees is not that wonderful list of virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, but instead he sees this list, the works of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what you have here is this greater Greco-Roman culture, and Paul is being like, you don't want to be like that, but instead, when you live into the Spirit, when you follow the Holy Spirit, then there is a fruit that is produced that looks completely opposite to this. But Paul is not just contrasting Greco-Roman culture. There's actually another target of this verse, of the fruit of the Spirit. And specifically, it is in this community that Paul refers to as Judaizers. And the name is a little bit of a misnomer because these guys that he's referring to are actually Christian missionaries. So Paul went out to Galatia and he preached the word and then he moved on and he traveled somewhere else and some more Christian missionaries came into Galatia and started preaching and teaching as well. But one of the things that they started teaching that was different from Paul was that in order to be a Christian, in order to follow Jesus, you had to become more Jewish. Which meant that if you're a guy, you needed to be circumcised, that you needed to follow kosher dietary laws, and that you needed uh, and that you needed to observe the rites and rituals that were common in Judaism um, and Paul kind of goes hard in on this concept um, in contrasting the things that they are preaching. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. See, what the Judaizers were doing is that they were teaching that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you needed to follow all of the Jewish rules. But one of the things that Paul sees is that that type of law-bound justification, he says, to live in the grace of Christ is our purpose, but to try to be justified by law produces a faith that is loveless, joyless, is unkind. And so he says, look, they're preaching a different gospel, and it may not even be a gospel at all. In his letter to the Corinthians, he refers to this type of legalistic thinking as a counterfeit gospel, which I think is really apt for us to imagine because when we think of, like, counterfeit money or counterfeit handbags, what is the counterfeit supposed to do? It's supposed to look and feel like the real thing, but it has no value at all. And so Paul is saying that this gospel based in law has no value that the grace of Jesus Christ has and a faith that is rooted in that. He says that you who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ and you have fallen away from grace. See, for us to be right with God, it's not about a list of rules that we have to follow and practices that we have to do. But Paul says the whole reason that Jesus came in the first place, his life, his death, and his resurrection, was all about giving us grace that is unearned by anything that we do. And that when we live into this law-based justification, we fall away from grace. Now, when we look at this word, you know, you have cut yourself off from Christ, um, scholars debate um, how to translate that, but many scholars have said, look, Paul is actually kind of making a gross pun here um, in that those who want to be justified by the law have cut themselves off from Christ and what is one of the things that you need to do to be Jewish? Well, if you're a dude, it means circumcision. And so I don't blame Paul for going hard against this concept because if you're a Gentile and you're not circumcised, um, in order to follow Jesus, I have to undergo surgery with first century anesthetics? No, thank you. No, thank you. Paul says, look, that's not what it's all about. That you don't have to become Jewish to follow Jesus. And so Paul is stuck between these two vastly different worldviews of Greco-Roman culture whose virtues are the antithesis of what he sees as the virtues of God. That in the middle of their debauchery, they have fallen away so far away from God that they are producing the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. But he also sees the religion that the Judaizers are trying to promote that is based in law, and he says, look, if you're trying to be justified before God by just following all the rules, then you're going to have a faith that doesn't produce any of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, That's the culture in which Paul is speaking into. But we have to ask ourselves, do these worldviews, do they still persist today? And I think they do. I don't think I have to convince you too much in the ways in which that Greco-Roman way of thinking still permeates our culture today. That, look, like, the internet is great, but we are only a few keystrokes away from watching a war develop live through the lens of people's cell phone cameras. And that we're only a few keystrokes away from visiting websites that would make the Romans blush. And so this persistent culture that is running away from God... Still exists today. But I think it's a little bit more subtle in the ways in which that Judaizer type thinking, that law based thinking, creeps into our Christian faith today. One of the ways that I was reminded of the ways in which this still permeates into our culture today was while I was listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Now, I think this is such an important podcast in terms of being reflective on who we are as a culture of Christianity today. Um, And so if you have the time, go check it out. But the story of Mars Hill, for those of you that aren't familiar, is that Mars Hill was a church that was planted by three men in Seattle in 1996. And they started with 100 regular attenders, but by 2010, there were 10 thousand people coming to their church. And one of the main things that made their church grow so fast is that they had this talented, charismatic pastor named Mark Driscoll. And he would give these sermons that were convicting, and they would, you know, really get in people's face. He was especially good at talking to young men and saying, hey, you guys that are living like the world, knock it off repent of your sin, and live differently. And some people really needed to hear that, and they latched onto that message, and especially since he had this style that was kind of abrupt, mixed with like a stand-up comedian style, and so people started flocking to this church. But the thing about it is that eventually what you see is that Driscoll had a very narrow conception of what it meant to be Christian and to live like a Christian. Because he had all of this like macho, rah, 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 like you have to fight for your faith and your family, which is all good. But at times, his vision of what it meant to be a man of God looked more like a character from Fight Club than it did anything in Scripture. Scripture. Now, you can't have a church of 10,000 with just men, right? So there was also an appeal to women as well, but there was also a narrow vision of what it meant to be a woman of God. And I know that it's a little bit reductive, but eventually that vision got constrained to this idea that women should be modest and meek out in public, but in private they should be submissive, and a little bit freaky. And so what ends up happening is that you have this incredible double standard for both men and women in the way that they are supposed to live, and a very narrow conception that says do this, do that, do this, and do the other thing, and then you'll be a real Christian. And the hard thing is that Eventually, that teaching caught up with them as a church. That being so law bound and being so, having this like brawler mentality to their idea of masculinity created a really toxic culture amongst their staff that was really verbally abusive. And this idea that there was a very narrow way in which you could be a woman of God. And you had to be, you know, the man had to be the leader, and the wife had to submit to the man. Created problems as well, is that when people would come in for marriage counseling, you'd have these situations in which women were told to submit to their husbands, even in clear situations where there was abuse. And what you see is that when you get this narrow vision of what it means to be Christian, and it's all about following this rule or that rule, eventually there is no fruit. There's no fruit of the Spirit. It becomes a place that is devoid of joy and kindness and gentleness. But even despite all these things, the church continued to grow. And even though there were some warning signs, like in 2006, they were restructuring their leadership, and two of the elders, or pastors on staff, they had some hesitation about consolidating decision-making within Pastor Mark. And those two pastors got kicked out of the church and labeled as heretics. And when reflecting on what had happened, Pastor Mark said, look, Mars Hill is a bus. It's a big bus, man. And we're on a mission from God and we're driving. And look, you either got to get on the bus or get off the bus. But if you stand in front of the bus, you're going to get run over. And I'm convinced by the end of this thing, there's going to be a pile of dead bodies behind this bus. And I listened to that quote. And look, I get he's being hyperbolic and being figurative in his language. But there's something in that quote that betrays a sense of, look, I as a Christian can keep pushing forward on my mission, and it doesn't matter how many people get hurt along the way. And a faith and a religion that does that doesn't bear any fruit. That's not a real gospel, that we as Christians, we cannot be content to leave a wake of hurt and disaster in our midst. Now, the story of Mars Hill concludes in 2014 that eventually all of this stuff ended up catching up to them. And in 2014, they asked Pastor Mark to be suspended and to take a leave of absence and to repent of some of the things that he had created within the staff culture and had been teaching as a whole. And instead of repenting, he said, I quit. And within six months, the church closed its doors and sold off all its property. Now, I think it's easy to hear stories like that and say, Okay, look, there's all these red flags. How in the world could anybody want to go to a place like this? And I'm telling you that we, we as Christians, we are susceptible to a counterfeit gospel. That often we as Christians tend to value charisma over character. That we value the gifts of the spirit, the spiritual gifts, over the fruits of the Spirit. And what I mean by that is, um, Paul has this list in both Romans and Corinthians that kind of get smashed together, in which he talks about the gifts that are given by the Spirit, and he says, look, there's prophecy, teaching, wisdom, miracles, knowledge, tongues, healing, faith, mercy, exhortation, and this is just a small part of that list, but when you look at this list, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, like, these are the qualities that I want in a leader, Right? These are kind of the sexy gifts, right? But the thing is that even Paul says, look, if we wield these spiritual gifts without the fruit of the Spirit, then we have gained nothing. That it's within this list, these fruits of the Spirit, that we are given the ability to know whether we are walking in line with the Spirit, and whether the gospel that we are following is based in law or in love. Whether the type of gospel that we are following is okay with hurting people in our wake or is is not content until we not only are loving and joyful and peaceful ourselves, but when we evoke that sense of love and joy and peace in other people. See, I want to believe in a Christianity that believes in these things and is not content to leave a wake of pain and trauma behind us in what we think is following God. Paul even says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, if I speak in tongues, and so you'll notice that I've bolded the ways in which he's referencing the spiritual gifts. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Because ultimately, spiritual gifts amount to little without the fruit of the Spirit. That when we have all those wonderful things of prophecy and wisdom and we are not wielding them in a way that evokes love and generosity, faithfulness and gentleness... We're doing it wrong. Because the true gospel always bears the fruit of the Spirit. That's the way that we know that we are neither living in the way of the world or in the way of the Judaizers. Because ultimately, the gospel bears the fruit of the Spirit, but Jesus bears the fruit of the Spirit as well. That when I look at this list of these qualities, of these virtues, I see them so perfectly expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the true gospel is based in the the grace of Jesus Christ and that gospel bears fruit for us for our community, and for our world. So as you go into the world, ask yourself, what fruit are you bearing? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you evoking love and joy and peace and kindness in the people around you? Is that how you are living? because in there we know that we are following the true gospel. Amen, good? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have not (sighs) that you have not abandoned us to be people of the world, that you have sent your son Jesus into this world to make sure that we are not caught in our own ways, just like the Greeks or the Romans, but that you show us a way that gives new life and gives us a promise of new life in this one and in the next. God, I ask you that we might be the people who bear the fruit of your Spirit in your world, that with love, joy, peace, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, we might be the people who make you proud, that we live with the intention that your Son lived. So God, be with us, renew us, help us to forgive other people in the way that you have forgiven us, so that we might not be trapped in the way of law or the way of the world, but might bear the fruit of your Spirit in all things. We love you so much and it's in your name we pray. Amen.